Well, good morning. No one's in the balcony. Oh, we've got a couple of stragglers up in the balcony running our sound and stuff like that. But sure glad that you weathered the storm. I don't think it happened out. It happened like the weather guy said, right? And some of you have joked about that on Facebook and around that they seem to miss it every time. Uh, so some of you, I'm going to preach this morning on learning to weep again, or blessed are those who mourn. Some of you are snow mourners because you wanted more. And some of you wanted less, and you're glad that it didn't snow at all. Natalie and I greatly appreciate your prayers. She flew over to Georgia this week and was able to make it a couple of hours before Mr. Billy died. And I know uh, Natalie's mom certainly appreciates all the prayers that you prayed for us and for her and the family, and we, we appreciate that. Pray for me. I'm, I've got to fly to, back to Alabama. I was in Georgia this week, but to Alabama to do another funeral this week. And so I, just pray for me. It's one of my closest friends, mother-in-law, that died. And so just pray for that. That'll be a quick flight in and back. And I'm glad that they're going to kind of wait to the middle of the week so we can get the snow out of the, out of the way to make it a little bit easier. In your bulletin, you have a sermon, and that's not the one I'm preaching. <laughs> I just felt like I wanted as many people that could possibly be here as I start, started preaching on the richest pastoral passage in the entire Bible. I wanted to have as many people as possible. And so certainly I look forward to preaching with passion the issue that we have to trust the providence of God in, in all situations and treasuring Jesus Christ supremely. So that will be next week. Today I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn it to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to talk about learning to weep again. Do you ever look around at the world and wonder what in the world has happened? Ever seem to you that life has changed and this is not our Father's world anymore? Do you ever, do you remember the story? Uh, I would refer to it as a children's story, but I'm not sure it even was. But it was about Rip Van Winkle. Y'all know that story? The story's about a man that goes to sleep under a tree, and he sleeps for 20 years, and wakes up, and he's got a long beard, kind of like the guys around here during the time of Bethlehem in November. He wakes up to a world that he doesn't recognize anymore. And nobody knows him, and he doesn't know anyone. And I have to tell you that sometimes I suffer from the Van Winkle syndrome. Only I don't, at this point, don't have the benefit of 20 years of sleep. But the fact is, we look around, and we feel like at times we have awakened to a world that doesn't make sense anymore. We look around, we see all the things that are happening, and wonder, how did all these changes take place? And I don't mean just technological changes. Those are boggling, aren't they? Mind-boggling, however. There are changes that we've seen culturally and changes socially and morally that have taken place in the last 25 to 30 years that are absolutely mind-boggling. If you want the evidence of how quickly things change, just compare TV today to TV 25 to 30 years ago. Uh, that's enough to make us stop and pause and think just think about the things that we now hear through the television compared to what we used to hear. I can remember a time, even in my life, when the worst thing you could ever hear on TV is Barney Fife saying, gosh darn it, Andy. <laughs> remember that? That's about it. Now anything goes and anything blows. 
And if you don't have something to bleep out what's said on TV, your kids are going to hear everything that you could possibly imagine. It's not, all, not only hearing, but it's also seeing. I remember when uh, Ricky and Lucy had twin beds. Y'all remember that? And some of you younger people are like, who in the world Ricky and Lucy? Well, I love Lucy. But literally, they showed them on TV. If they showed the bedroom, they had twin beds. But, well, we've gone a long way from that, right? And if there's ever any kissing at all on TV, it was in the neck, and that was it. And everybody was fully clothed. It's not the case anymore. But the greatest amazement to me is not technological or social or cultural. The greatest amazement I have is how we respond to it. I think that has to be the appalling thing. The things that used to appall us and bother us actually amuse us today. And we don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Some people say what's really happened is in the U.S. we've, we've become more sophisticated in our values. And they say that's a good thing. Sophistication when it comes to values. Well, maybe in some degree we have become more sophisticated in our values. But I am certain that that's not a good thing. Aren't you? In fact, I think the truth is that it's not so much that we're more sophisticated in our values. It's that we are less sensitive to sin. That's the problem with us and our country. And that's a dangerous thing. One man said it like this. He said, and I quote, it's like this. We've forgotten how to weep over sin. And any sin that we're not willing to weep over is a sin that you will not repent of. And any sin you won't repent of is a sin that you will pay the price for. Well said. Well, this morning, I want us to learn about how to weep about sin. The Sermon on the Mount is the moral and ethical foundation of the Christian faith. The Sermon on the Mount is the equivalent to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. The Sermon on the Mount would be the equivalent of that. So, the Sermon on the Mount, again, is the ethical foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus said at the conclusion of this great sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, He says, Whoever hears these sermons of mine and does them, he will be like a man who builds his house upon a rock, and the wind blow, will blow and the rain will fall, the storms will come. And the Bible says that, when this happens, his house will stand. If your faith is built on the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, when tough times come, your faith will stand. So let's look at the very first four verses of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm only going to preach verse 4, but let's get a running start. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. The Bible says he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So here's the question. We have a qualitative decision that we have to make in addressing this. I believe, let's back up to verse 3. Uh, one great pastor used to preach and teach that really when it comes to, the, to understanding the Summer on the Mount, and the Beatitudes all the way up to the end of chapter 7, it is important that you see blessed are those who are poor in spirit as one side of the post holding up the gate to eternal life and the other side being blessed are those who mourn. 
And why is that important? Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter heaven. And their righteousness was an outward righteousness. So the, what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not a righteousness that mankind can have outwardly. It's a gift of God, not of works. The gift that God gives is a righteousness that supersedes that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because it's the very righteousness of Jesus given to us so that we have that standing of righteousness. So if you look at either side of the gate of eternal life or narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and you've got poor in spirit on one side and blessed are those who mourn. Why is that important? Because if you don't understand this morning that you're spiritually bankrupt and that's what poor in spirit means. It means that you yourself, left to yourself, there's no way that you can save yourself or change your condition in life or better yourself in good works. Then you, you haven't come to the place of understanding how much you need Jesus, right? So poor in spirit, which really means I'm spiritually bankrupt without Christ. And then the mourning part has to do with sin. A sensitivity to the seriousness of sin. Those two things are vitally important. Furthermore... If you don't understand the magnitude of sin, you certainly, won't you certainly won't know that you need a physician to heal you, and his name is Jesus Christ. So, we're thinking about this statement. What does he mean by saying, blessed are those who mourn? What are we mourning over? What are we weeping over? Well, some believe it's just simply that people's hearts get broken in life. And you go through difficulty and you're mourning over those things, whether it's trials or tribulations or j just the ebb and flow of life can cause us to mourn. However, I don't think he's saying that, that at all, nor is he saying that you kind of got to walk around with a depressed look on your face all the time and sackcloth and ashes and, and appear to mourn. We've, we've got people who've done that in past years uh, in different sects and cults that walk around like they're always in a perpetual situation of mourning. That's not what's going on at all. He's talking about being brokenhearted over your sin. He's talking about, he's referencing in specific, uh, specifically sin and evil that's in your own life. Those are things that, that the Lord means by saying, blessed are those who mourn over sin. So we might paraphrase this by saying, blessed is the man or woman who has come to understand how significant sin is. Sin, ladies and gentlemen, is not a laughing matter. It's a serious issue. Charles Finney, the great evangelist, used to preach about the dry-eyed church, dry-eyed church in a hell-bent world. I think that it might be good for us to consider that occasionally, right? The dry-eyed church in the hell-bent world. We must all come to the place like King David did and like Paul did. David said, against thee only have I sinned. And Paul would say, I am a wretched man. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, understood the magnitude of sin and how it affected us. So I need to, this morning... And you need to understand how to weep over sin, how to take it seriously, to say sin is a big deal. So this morning, I want to take this apart. Can you all remember two things? First, I want to talk about the premise that Jesus actually makes, and that premise is this. Sin is significant. 
And then I want to talk about the promise in this verse that grace is sufficient. Amen? That's a good sermon for a snowy day, don't you think? First, let's take this apart. The premise, sin is significant. Sin really does matter. And when I stop and consider my own experience in my own life uh, and the decisions I have made that have been the result of my sin, for my life, it's a no-brainer that sin is serious. And it ought not only be for me as a pastor to think like that. Uh, Everybody in this room, you could think back over decisions you've made and choices you've made that have affected you down the line. Because there is a biblical principle. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And folks, that's the law of the harvest. And that is going to come true. So sin is significant. But there are also certain things in life that experience doesn't make us any wiser about these things. There are some things that we can only learn through experience. And other things that experience really doesn't help us a whole lot. You ever lived... Can you think of things like that? I heard about a mother on one occasion. She was over washing the dishes. And she heard this blood-curdling scream come out of the other room. And she runs into the room just in in time to find a little four-year-old Judy. And she's sitting in the floor with her two-year-old brother pulling her hair out. And she's screaming to the top of her lungs. And the mother comes in and says, Sweetheart, it's okay. He didn't mean to hurt you, little two-year-old Johnny. He doesn't know that pulling hair hurts. She comforts her and she goes back to the kitchen kitchen, and she begins to wash those dishes again. And then she hears that other blood-curdling scream again. But this time, it's not little four-year-old Judy. It's actually little Johnny. And she runs in just in time to see little Judy walking out of the door saying, By golly, he knows now. (laughs) Right? Well, there are some things that you can only learn by experience. But it seems to me that there are some things that experience that you experience that actually makes you desensitized to those things. It's kind of like when you sit in the darkness long enough, you become accustomed to it. And I think that's what's happened to us. We, we've experienced things so much, and we've stopped being appalled by things, and we end up just kind of being desensitized, and, and even, believe it or not, we become amused at things like that. Did you know that two-thirds of the Bible was written by? Nearly two-thirds of the Bible was written by the Apostle Paul. And through most of what he's writing, he's reminding church members of what sin will do to you. Did you know that? Just think about that for a moment. I'm sorry, two-thirds of the New Testament Paul wrote, not the whole Bible, because you're thinking, how is that possible? He did write 13 epistles, so two-thirds of the New Testament. And just read it, folks. He's dealing with church after church after church. He's dealing with people. He's dealing with error in the church. And, and the majority of what Paul is dealing with is not writing to lost people. He's writing to church members. Churches he's planted. And he's telling them over and over and over again that sin can destroy you. In fact, someone obviously in the church at Rome believed that, hey, if Paul teaches that where sin abounded, grace does much more abound then I think what we ought to do is just keep sinning. That's actually what they believed. If grace abounds when we sin, the more we sin, the more grace is going to abound. So why don't we just keep on sinning? That sounds like a really good idea, doesn't it? Have you ever read that passage, by the way? It's found in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then, Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What he's doing is he's taking a statement that, that the believers are using to justify their sin. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What was Paul's response? God forbid. For a believer, that should never be the response. Paul's comment to that is, God forbid. Here's a loose translation. How ridiculous is that for us to even think it? And the whole book of 1 John is written to counteract Christians who thought it wasn't a big deal to sin. Why? Because the people to whom John was writing believed that the body was evil. And that that spirit was good. It's called an incipient form of Gnosticism. It was around back then. And they believed that you only needed to be in touch with the Lord or with God, or whoever they thought was God, by the Spirit. And it really didn't matter how you lived out your life in the body. The Spirit was good, and all that God cared about was the Spirit. So thereafter, anything you did in the body was okay, as long as you were spiritually connected with God. This sounds like New Age all the way, right? Because it is. Hollywood, uh, I heard a Hollywood actress say just this, I don't feel guilty about anything. Well, if you feel like anything you want to do in the body is fair game and that God cares nothing about what you do, only connecting in the Spirit, then that's how you're going to live. Can I tell you what sin does? Uh, let me show you, actually, how serious you should be about sin. First John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood... Okay, hold on. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, verse 8, listen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, get this. Get this with the premise of sin, that sin is significant. If you say you have no sin, the truth of God's Word is not in you. Period. Okay? Verse 9. Don't you love this verse? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that verse. Verse 10, we'll come back to it in a moment. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. You see how serious sin is? If, you, if, you, if, you're un, if there's not a conscious, a God consciousness of sin, even as a believer in you, then the truth of God is not in you. And furthermore, the Word of God is not in you. Can I tell you what sin does to you? Just going through the Scripture and thinking about it. Number one, it enslaves you. Jesus said, whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. It's the issue of addiction that turns into bondage. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 is written, that we need to bring every thought under captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every single thought. Well, that's strong, isn't it? Because, and, and the scripture goes on to say, pulling down strongholds and every vain thing that lifts up our imagination against the Lord. So sin enslaves, but it also defiles. If you're a Christian and you can sin and walk away feeling awful about it, if you are a Christian and you can sin and you can walk away and not sense the Spirit of God convicting you and not sensing that guilt, I question whether you know the Lord or not. I have never, since the time I accepted Christ, been able to sin without conviction. Now, it may not happen right at that moment, but I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. That's something we have to think about. 
That is one of the greatest signs that you know the Lord. When you sin, you are convicted. Nobody's saying amen. Are you in a different realm than I'm in? Different spirit living in you? Right? Uh, I'm telling you, from the day I was saved, I can't remember a time when God doesn't bring that sin to my mind immediately. Through His truth and through His word. And there's the immediate need to do 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins. By the way, that's not a sonship verse. That is a fellowship verse. So 1 John 1, 9 is not written to lost people. 1 John 1, 9 is written to saved people. And you may say, well, I thought my sin was dealt with past, present, and future as a Christian. It is. But your fellowship is dependent upon you confessing your sins that God says are sins. And if you're not, as He is in the light, you're not walking in the light, but you're walking in darkness. Does that make sense? So, sin enslaves and it also defiles. It defiles you. And it demands confession and repentance. Sin also alienates you. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. You say, well, that's Old Testament. I don't care what you say. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Furthermore, I want to remind you men of something. Just, just, just in passing, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, says that the way you treat your spouse can hinder your prayer life. Men. So, I'm just telling you that it alienates you when you're walking in sin. It will alienate you from the Lord. But it also diminishes you. And here's the big deal, folks. Do you know why I think we never think about the nations coming to Christ? And we don't think much about people in our community who need to know Christ. And we don't think much about the purpose and mission. We don't think much about being agents of the mission. It's because sin diminishes us. It really does. It, it causes you to get your focus off the things in life that are most important. Why do you think Jesus ended? Matthew, I think it's Luke 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. But sin will make you spiritually impotent. And you may can think about the times when you were engaged. And some of you engaged spiritually with the Lord. And you may have come today and, and you can think back to those times. You may have even walked in today thinking, man, I'm dry. I, I actually feel like I, spiritually impotent. I, I think about the days when I felt the power of the Spirit coursing through me and, and I was in fellowship with the Lord and I, I sensed that I was filled with the Spirit of God and God was using me in amazing ways. You were teaching your Sunday school class with more fervor and passion and all of a sudden that's gone from you. You uh, could remember a time when it was easy for you to open your mouth and tell somebody about Christ or about what Jesus has accomplished in your life, but now it's like pulling teeth. Maybe there was a time when you came to church and you were excited about hearing the things that were preached from the Word and, and getting engaged in the work of the ministry, but now it's just like, well, ho-hum, you know, it's not as important anymore. Do you remember the story of Samson? That dude was a heavyweight champion of the Old Testament, right? I mean, they just did the thing down here in Branson about Samson. The Bible says he tore a lion in half with his bare hands, the same way you and I tear a tissue apart. Amazing. He killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Can you all imagine that? That was one bad dude. Before they had all these wrestling things and those guys take all them steroids, Samson... 
And I don't really see Samson as some bulked up man. I just see him as he probably was. But that wasn't the secret of his strength, was it? But we would all say that he was a man's man. Uh, Samson had a weakness, though. And you know what that weakness was? It was a woman. <coughs> oh. One day, Samson is lying there. And his head is in the lap of Delilah. And now, does everybody know what the secret of Samson's strength was? His hair? Really? Or was it the Nazarite vow? The hair was a symbol of the vow, folks. That, that was the weakness. Uh, it was not his hair. It was the fact that he broke the Nazarite vow. So, uh, again, the hair was a symbol of the vow. And when he cut the hair, it was symbolic of the fact that he had broken the vow. So she cuts his hair... He shakes himself when the Philistines come upon him, and he flexes his muscles. And again, you hear the saddest statement in the entire Bible. It says, for he knew not that the power of God had departed. Mm. I am convinced, for a lot of us, that happens. It's not that God has gone anywhere because the Holy Spirit indwells you, but you've, you've quenched and you've grieved, and we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit so much. Why? Because we're not sensitive to sin. And we become accustomed to it. And we're not regularly confessing before our God that sin is sin. So it absolutely diminishes you. Think about that. Sin enslaves, defiles, alienates, and diminishes us. I remember reading a story one time that was tragic. You had to take two to look at it. But I was in seminary. And I read a story about some teenagers in Florida that were hanging out one night with nothing to do, so they drive by this intersection, and one of them gets the idea, a very busy intersection, let's take down the stop sign at this busy intersection. Short time later, another group of kids, they come driving through, they're flying through the intersection. No stop sign there, and they hit head-on with another car, and all of them are killed. They found out who stole the stop sign, but they charged all of them with manslaughter and convicted them. And the judge, in sentencing these teenagers, said, I know you never intended it to happen, but it happened. That's sort of what happens when we ignore the Scripture. God puts that stop sign right in front of us, and we disobey the Scripture. And the Scripture all the time is saying, don't take down or run that stop sign. I think it's some honest confession that all of us need to make before the Lord. We need to be honest about a lot of things that used to break our hearts. They don't break our hearts anymore. And I suspect if I feel that way, it's no different for you. Right? So here's the premise. Sin is serious. But here's the great part of the sermon. Here's the promise. Grace is sufficient. The Bible says, Blessed are those who are serious over sin, for they will now know the significance of the sufficiency of the grace of God. Why? Because the word comfort means to console or one that comes alongside. So let me tell you what gives me comfort in the midst of my sin. When I think about God coming to our rescue and or consoling us over sin. The first thing is we have a perfect father. Aren't y'all thankful for that? I am so glad he's not like me. And I'm really glad he's not like some of you. Right? He is a perfect father. I don't always respond with grace. Sometimes I respond with rage or with the wrong kind of attitude. But that's not true with our Heavenly Father. He's always responding with grace. The second thing that comforts me is that on the cross we had a perfect sacrifice. There really isn't anything else to do in regard to our sin. 
You don't have to worry about whether you've done enough penance to fix it. Uh, Can I tell you something? Without Christ, you cannot do enough penance to fix it. But you don't have to fix it. It's already been fixed by the Son of God. It has. Think about that. Think of the cross. Uh, Think about God's remedy. Think about His provision for our sin debt. And finally, we have a perfect advocate. We have a perfect Father. We have a perfect sacrifice. We have a perfect advocate. Now, again, back to 1 John. Let me show you something. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't that awesome? That we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know what an advocate is? It's someone who stands in your defense. It's someone who stands up for you. The picture the Bible paints of our Lord is that He is with the Father and He's standing up for you. Now, He's not defending me or you in the sense of saying, now, this is a really good person. And I know that uh, Eric Jackson is a good person. And he may sin occasionally here and there, but, you know, or he may, he may look at me and say, you know, a lot of you people think the pastor's pretty special. That uh, he's a pastor, he's a preacher. He doesn't know, you know, he, he does pretty good. He's a good old guy. The reality of the picture of an advocate is not like that at all. The reality is, if you understand the picture, what he does is he stands before his father. And he says, Philip has sinned. And I dare say, he's probably going to sin again. But my righteousness has paid the penalty for his sin. That debt has been paid. And I stand in defense. His righteousness is my right. Jesus' righteousness was given to me. And folks, that is the only way that we are ever going to be accepted before the Father. And that's the only way that you are still accepted before the Father. It's because of the advocacy of the Son. That's a great picture. Father, forgive him for that reason. Forgive him because of my glory and my the cost of Calvary and what I purchased him from. Well, see, the promise is much greater than the sin, don't you think? Sin is serious. But as Galatians reminds us, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Aren't you thankful for that? That where sin abounded in your heart and life, for we all are, we're, we're all sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I'm so thankful for the sufficiency of grace. You ever come before the Lord and you think, oh my goodness, the Lord's going to say, here he is again. Same sin, same situation. It's almost like, uh, you know, why does that take place? Again, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And we think as Baptists, we're just going to sin, so we might as well give in. That's just not true. You have the Spirit of God in you, and no one's holding a gun to your head making you sin. You make those choices. But the fact of the matter is, isn't it awesome? Don't you love the Scripture? If we confess our sins, listen to this. He is faithful 
and just. Why can he be that way? Because he is the faithful and just one. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you love the picture that the Bible gives regarding our sin being forgiven? God takes my sin and places them as far as the east is from the west. Not north and south, which is a limited distance, but east and west, which is unlimited. He buries them, the Bible says, in the deepest part of the ocean and remembers them no more. Corey Ten Boone says he places a no fishing sign over it. Isn't that awesome? Imagine what a mess your life would be if God held everything against you that everybody else holds against you. Furthermore, that you hold against yourself. Aren't you thankful for the Lord God? My reminder today is that we need to be sensitive over sin. We need to think about the promise of the grace of God that is so significant that, oh, it is grace and grace alone that God would save sinners like us. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't you love Jeremiah 18? We'll close with this. He's the potter, and we are the clay. There's not a more graphic picture of the sovereignty of God over humanity than the potter and the clay. Found anywhere in the Old Testament. And if surely, when he's fashioning us into what he would have us to be, uh, there are stubborn spots, and there are blemishes, and Uh, The whole nine yards. But that text in Jeremiah 18 says, And he made it over again, as seemed pleasing for the potter to make it. I'm thankful that he doesn't just discard and throw the clay away, but he's fashioning you into what he would have you to be. He's got power over the clay. Folks, I want to remind you that there's some pressure involved with that. I heard Charles Stanley say this in passing this morning. I was flipping through the channels, and one thing he said was this. God uses your life, and he uses his will, To conform you into his will, of course. But he does so to create a foundation of strength in your life before the Lord. Meaning that God does all things so that he's strengthening his people. Making them more like Jesus. And he's the potter and we're the clay. Folks, if that's ever going to happen, we need to be serious about sin. We need to be a church that's serious about sin. Not just a church, but individually. If you're not individually serious about it, then we won't be corporately serious about it as a church. Sin is serious. Grace is sufficient. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord. And you may be like Charles, you may be like Moody, I think it was, that was looking for a church. It was either Moody or Spurgeon. They were looking for a church, lots of snow on the ground. And they made it to one church that happened to be having services that day. And there was only five people sitting in there. And I think all five of them were women. And he preached the word of God. He listened to the preacher preach and he got saved. Ah, maybe after you today. You've come to church. Didn't know what the sermon was going to be about, but you heard that sin is serious. Right? And you heard also that grace is sufficient to save us. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, you said this, Lord Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who see the seriousness of sin. For they shall be comforted. Lord, just backing up to blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, without brokenness over sin, without an understanding of our inability to change ourselves and to save ourselves, there is no entrance into heaven. 
We're not thinking about the remedy. We're not thinking about the provision. As you said, Lord Jesus, those who are well do not need a physician. Father, we admit that we're sick. That our sin separates us from you. And God, we need a physician. We need you to save us and change us. Lord, thank you for your love for us. God, help us to weep over sin, not to be amused and to laugh. God, individually in our own hearts, we feel the sting of this. We know, Lord, that we're prone to wonder. And we know how sin diminishes our, uh, Lord, our spiritual life. How that it just chips away at our vitality and our desire to be committed to you. God, help us to be renewed again today. Lord, let this be an altar, a time uh, of an invitation to you to say, Lord God, help me in this area. Lord, we're so akin to wanting to maximize the eight or ten things that we've got right and minimize the other two or three things. Lord, we don't need to do that. We need to maximize the areas that need to be in absolute surrender to you and your sovereignty. Lord, you deserve that. And Lord, I pray you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.